We, who are disciples of Jesus, are called to be salt and light in the world, to draw out the best in everything around us, in a world that too often has lost its flavor and is sometimes overwhelmed by darkness. Being blessed is a gift from God. Being a blessing to others is our most appropriate response to this gift. That's the Reverend Susan Pendleton Jones, and today she brings you an inspiring message of faith called Salt and Light. I'm Peter Wallace. It's day one. Welcome to Day One, the weekly program that brings you outstanding preachers from America's historic Protestant churches, sharing insight and inspiration from God's Word for your life. Now to introduce this week's preacher, here's our host, Peter Wallace. Thank you, Sherry. Today on Day One, we're honored to have with us the Reverend Susan Pendleton-Jones, who serves as the Senior Fellow for Christ-Centered Visioning and First Lady of Belmont University in Nashville, Tennessee, where her husband, the Reverend Dr. Greg Jones, began serving as president in June 2021. Before moving to Nashville, she served as Associate Dean of Ministerial Formation at Duke Divinity School and also served as Duke's Director of Field Education. Susan has been involved in leadership and board roles with a variety of community organizations and foundations. A retired elder in the United Methodist Church, she earlier served as pastor of churches in North Carolina and Maryland and as the United Methodist Campus Minister at Duke. She is a graduate of Virginia Wesleyan University, which awarded her an honorary doctorate and earned her Master of Divinity from Duke. Susan, welcome to Day One. Thank you. Less than a year ago, your husband, Greg Jones, preached on Day One and introduced us to the university he serves as president, Belmont University in Nashville. But give us your view of the school's mission, programs, and students. Belmont is an amazing place. Uh, It is uh, comprised of almost 9,000 students, undergrad and graduate, as well as faculty and staff who support and nurture and treasure those students. Mm. We call it a Christ-centered university because the word Christian today can be misinterpreted, we think. Mm. Uh, Christian also puts the emphasis on us rather than on Christ. Mm. And so to call it Christ-centered means that we're wanting to focus on on Christ and not on who we are as leaders and, and people in particular. We call Belmont a unicorn in a sense mm. because it's a place uh, where students are are very uh, engaged in service and learning and very interested in their formation as followers of Christ and are very committed to not just to asking what's in it for them, mm. but to asking how can we help, how can we serve, how can we relate to the Nashville community and far beyond. So they are very committed to lives of service and, mm. and commitment to others, which is very impressive. Mm. And unpack your title for us. How do you serve the university and its various constituents as Senior Fellow of Christ-Centered Visioning? My title, uh, in a sense, relates to the sermon that I preached, and that is that my hope is to be salt and light in that community Mm. and to be a blessing to all those. I I try to listen deeply um, 
and try to respond to needs both of staff, faculty, and students. And so, for instance, uh, we have some scholarship students who don't have, uh, as part of their scholarship package, the opportunity to take music lessons. Hmm. And so when several of them at a lunch where we were gathered told me that they needed music lessons, I made sure that they were able to get those lessons Mm. because it was very much a passion for them. So I try to listen to the needs of the community and to bring hope where where it's needed and to bring some guidance and some wisdom from from the years to uh, to students especially but we've also done a number of things for staff to help staff feel more like their uh, work at Belmont is more of a calling and mm. a vocation rather than just a job mm-hmm. so we created a program called life around the table where we bring uh, faculty and staff from varieties of disciplines together so that they can get to know each other. And we offer a meal together and time of prayer and sharing and a time of devotion. Mm. And so it's really wonderful to see uh, staff and faculty who only know each other through email actually begin to know each other in person and connect. And it's it's building bonds and connections that that we're just grateful that we're we're able to help to create. Mm Susan, you served in numerous strategic and leadership roles at Duke University Divinity School before moving to Nashville, not only teaching courses, but as Associate Dean of Ministerial Formation, Director of Field Education, and even Project Coordinator for the Divinity School's Building Edition. I wonder, though, what your favorite aspect of your work there was and why. Uh, My favorite a role at Duke Divinity School was being director of field education, mm. where I was able to get to know hundreds of local churches and nonprofits around the Durham area, throughout North Carolina, and really throughout the country and 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 beyond. We had placements in parts of Africa and Central America. And uh, I was able to interview all of our students numerous times to hear their passions and to hear uh, their fears and Mm -hmm. their concerns and then make those uh, placements that would provide both the support that they needed but also the challenge that that they needed as well. And Mm -hmm. so – being able to listen again, listen deeply to the to the desires and the thoughts of our students and matching them with mentors and supervisors, with communities of people who would walk with them and nurture them and help them grow in their faith and in their skills for ministry. It was a it was a beautiful opportunity to to be in ministry uh, mm. in that way. Well, on top of everything you are doing at Belmont University, you also serve on a variety of boards and organizations and foundations um, now in the Nashville area, of course. But I'm wondering, with all your amazing experience and skills, how would you summarize your life mission? Uh, I I think it's living into this calling of being salt and light, mm-hmm. of um, of listening to the needs of those around me and being an advocate and a friend and a resource mm. for for others particularly for the least of these uh, all the boards that i serve on have the thing they have in common is that they all help children in one way mm. or another the uh, orphanage in india on whose board i sit and have been raising funds for them uh, it's beautiful to see the the influence in a 
in a country of, of deep poverty to mm-hmm. see this Christian orphanage uh, do amazing, amazing things with these children in need. And then the other boards I serve on relate to food insecurity, mm-hmm. relate to health needs of immigrants. Uh, and so all of the boards have children and the needs of children mm-hmm. at their heart. Mm-hmm. And so part of my passion is uh, is serving the least of these, which often includes the children of the world. Mm. So how did it all start for you? How did you experience your call to ministry? That's a long story. I'll try <laughs> to keep it short. Um, I grew up in a fundamentalist Southern Baptist mm. church, and so I grew up uh, hearing missionaries speak and hearing lots of hellfire and brimstone preaching um, and and realizing that I wondered, uh, as a teenager especially, was what I was hearing from the from the pulpit, was that really a good interpretation of Scripture, sure. or was I just a rebellious teenager? <laughs> and uh, I probably was a rebellious teenager, but I also discovered when I went to college and then to seminary that the hermeneutical lens that I was uh, learning uh, through was not the best and mm. was not the healthiest. And uh, and so I began to sense that this yearning and tugging that I could feel inside uh, was for a deeper and richer understanding of mm. the faith and of how to read read the Bible and understand Scripture and how to understand my relationship with God. Was God a tyrant or was God the loving God that that mm. I knew in Jesus? And so, uh, as I was in college and then and then learning more in seminary and having this opportunity through the field ed program at Duke to serve, um, I ha- was having that internal calling confirmed mm. by finally by external voices. The church I had grown up in did not confirm that because mm. they didn't believe in women as clergy. Mm-hmm. But the United Methodist churches that I served in as an intern all, all the people there kept saying, oh, of course you're going to go into ministry. Of course you're called to do this. You're good at this. Mm. And so I began realizing that I could do it and that there would be a pathway opened. And it, it's really a beautiful story that the very program that helped me hear my call to ministry, the field ed program at Duke, was the program that about 25 years later, I got to go back and direct. Mm. And it's the program I just mentioned that was so meaningful to me there. And I'm sure part of why it was so meaningful was because it had shaped and formed me in such powerful ways. Mm. And the people in those churches through that program had helped me to hear my call to ministry and to hear God's voice Mm. at work in my own life. Wonderful. Well, Susan, your sermon today for the fifth Sunday after the Epiphany focuses on the gospel reading from Matthew chapter 5, part of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Would you read it for us? Beginning with verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything, but is thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hid. People do not light a lamp and put it under the bushel basket. Rather, they put it on the lampstand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. 
This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Your message is titled, Salt and Light. Susan, thank you for sharing it with us. Thank you. Several years ago, as I was putting our youngest son to bed, after we had turned off the lights and said prayers, I bent down over his bed to kiss him goodnight. As I did, he reached up and pulled my face toward his. Seven kisses he gave me on my forehead, four down and three across. And as he let me go, he looked me in the eye and he said, Mom, you are blessed. Ben, did you realize you kissed me in the shape of a cross? I asked him. Yup, he answered. I planned it that way. Wiping a tear from my eye, I said back to him, Thank you, Ben. You are blessed, too. Over the years, Ben had seen the sign of the cross made on other people's foreheads as well as his own, with ashes during Lent and with water during services of baptismal renewal. But never before had he seen the sign of the cross made on the forehead in kisses. From this little boy, often so full of mischief, I received an unexpected sign of grace from God. Kisses in the form of a cross. Kisses and a cross, blessing and sacrifice. The gospel writers regularly link these two themes together, and Jesus does so as well in his first teaching in Matthew's gospel, the Sermon on the Mount, which begins with the Beatitudes. A few years ago, our family stood at the site where tradition says Jesus preached this sermon. When you stand on the top of the hill, the valley below forms a large natural amphitheater that overlooks the Sea of Galilee. It is pristine, pastoral, serene. It feels like sacred space, totally different from the tourist sites in Bethlehem and Jerusalem places where they tell you that Jesus was born or was crucified in that exact location. There, by the Sea of Galilee, there's a sense of peace. You can begin to get a glimpse of the kingdom of heaven that Jesus was describing in these words. And it's still there, as if lingering in the air, waiting for other expectant ears centuries later, others who still want to hear how to live lives that God would call blessed. But Jesus surprises us with his description. It's not the rich who are offered the kingdom of heaven. It's not those who are filled, satisfied, and accomplished. It's not those who are proud and strong who are described as blessed. Through the Beatitudes, Jesus challenges the wisdom teachings of old. His listeners had been taught that you were blessed if you were wealthy and healthy, if you had lots of land and children and happiness. But in the kingdom Jesus is inaugurating, those who are blessed are quite the opposite. They are poor in spirit. They are the ones who mourn. They hunger and thirst. All those things which we are taught to value so highly, achievement, strength, power, plenty, that is not what Jesus blesses here. He promises hope to the hopeless, comfort to the bereaved, satisfaction for the hungry and thirsty. He blesses those who are empty, 
who stand with hands open and outstretched, wanting to be filled with God's abundant love and mercy, ready to receive. With these words, Jesus offers a radically new vision of what it means to be blessed. The Beatitudes are about what we cannot achieve, what we cannot accomplish on our own, what we can only receive as the most startling of gifts. The ED at the end of the word blessed is a hint. There is something passive about being blessed, about receiving something we cannot achieve. And yet, the Sermon on the Mount doesn't end with the Beatitudes. Jesus keeps preaching. Just after he finishes describing this new vision of what it means to be blessed, he immediately turns to what it means to be a blessing. If you are blessed, how then do you use that gift of being blessed to become a blessing to others? He shifts from the passive concept of being blessed to active images of how to be a blessing. The word blessing has its root in the word bene, like the words beneficial, benefactor, or benediction. Each of these has the idea of good or well at its root. So one way to be a blessing is to focus on the good, to call forth or draw out the good in others. When we bless other people, we are calling forth the good that already exists in them, oftentimes without them even knowing it. We see good in them that they might not even see in themselves. When we bless others, we enable them to be their best selves. We draw out the good in them that already exists but might be hidden. There's a beautiful image of this kind of blessing found in Marilyn Robinson's novel Gilead that tells the story of a minister nearing the end of his life who is writing his memoirs to leave for his seven-year-old son to read as he grows up. It's a story of adventure and pain, of grace and sacrifice. He tells the boy about his best friend's son, his namesake, who, it turns out, has let the family down again and again. Though disappointed at every turn by this young man, the elderly minister seeks him out before the younger man leaves his dying father and his hometown for a final time. Before he boards the bus to leave, the elderly minister asks his namesake if he can offer him a blessing right there at the bus stop. The young man bows his head, and the older man lays his hands on his head, offers a prayer, and then speaks these words. Lord, bless John Ames Boughton, this beloved son and brother and husband and father. Then he writes, I would have gone again through seminary and ordination and all the years intervening for that one moment. After Jesus speaks his words of blessing to the crowd, he immediately introduces two new images, salt and light. And in effect, he says, this is how you become a blessing. This is how you draw out the good in those around you. You become salt and light. They each exist to draw out the good in things around them. They don't exist solely for themselves. We know that salt actually tastes pretty nasty by itself. We would never sit down and eat a bowl of salt. Salt only works in relation to other things. It draws out the true flavors of the food it touches. In other words, 
Salt's purpose is to bless other things. Salt relates to the past as a preserver of various kinds of meats and sometimes even vegetables. It preserves what we want to keep, somewhat like tradition and history do. Salt acts as a preservative to allow us to hold on to the good of the past. Salt also relates to the future. When a pathway is blocked by ice or snow, we put down salt to open up a way to move forward. Think about it. When you are a blessing, you help others move into a future they might otherwise not have imagined. But most of all, salt relates to the present, drawing out the best flavors in the food on which it is sprinkled. We call it a flavor enhancer. And it's the same with light. You don't wake up in the morning and say, Thank you, son, for rising this morning. No, you wake up, you look around you, and you appreciate the beauty of all that the sun illumines with its rays. The sun blesses God's good creation by warming it and illuminating it. Its rays illumine the beauty of God's world, which cannot be seen in total darkness. In this way, light also helps make a path into the future more visible for those who are searching. So we, who are disciples of Jesus, are called to be salt and light in the world, to draw out the best in everything around us in a world that too often has lost its flavor and is sometimes overwhelmed by darkness. Being blessed is a gift from God. Being a blessing to others is our most appropriate response to this gift. And we do that by being salt in a world of decay and light in a world of darkness. And yet, some decay and darkness still remain. There continues to be sin and brokenness, places in our world and in our own lives where we are invited to confess our complicity and where God continues to meet us to offer healing, forgiveness, and hope. Toward the close of her hauntingly beautiful novel, Beloved, Toni Morrison tells of a conversation between two former slaves, Sixo and Sethi. Sixo had met a woman a few years back. He called her the 30-mile woman because he had to walk 30 miles to see her and spend time with her. He tells Sethi about what this woman had meant in his life, how she had met him in all his brokenness and over time had mended his life. She take the pieces that I am, he says, and she give them back to me in all the right order. It's good, you know, to have a friend of your mind. God befriends us like that. You've probably noticed that whenever Jesus eats with his disciples, he takes the bread, he blesses it, he breaks it, and gives it to them in a fourfold pattern that is repeated over and over and over. Take, bless, break, give. In that pattern of Eucharistic hospitality, the brokenness, the sacrifice, always comes under the blessing. A reminder that whatever broken places there are in our lives, they always belong under the blessing of God's forgiveness and all-sufficient grace. Similarly, God takes the pieces, all the broken places of our lives, gathers them up, puts them under his blessing, and then offers them back to us, redeemed 
and whole, in all the right order, so that we may live in the world as the body of Christ, redeemed and blessed by his love. Blessing and sacrifice, the two are inextricably connected. As people of faith, we are enabled to live as a blessing only when we take on the yoke of dependence on Jesus and follow his example of self-giving, sacrificial love. When we are emptied, we are able to receive. When we are hungry, we are able to be filled. When we are merciful, we find ourselves receiving mercy. We all yearn for God's grand story of redemption to be our story, to know in the depths of our being that we are forgiven and deeply loved. And in response to this blessing of God's love and grace in our midst, we become salt and light for the world. Who are those in your community, in your church, who live as salt and light, calling forth the good in others around them? Where do you see and experience signs of the kingdom here on earth as in heaven? Where are the stories of hope in your midst, of forgiveness being offered in spite of old grudges and resentments, of those who may see the painful truth of reality, but who also have eyes to catch a glimpse of something deeper and better, where the brokenness is always found under God's blessing? When my son Ben kissed me on the forehead that night years ago, I received an unexpected sign of grace from God and a challenging reminder of the cruciform shape of a life truly blessed. Kisses in the form of a cross. Would you pray with me? Most gracious and loving God, equip us to be salt in a world of decay and light in a world of darkness. Empower us to call forth the good in all those whom we encounter in our daily living. And inspire us to be a blessing each day in the communities where we live and serve. In the name of Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. Our preacher today was the Reverend Susan Pendleton Jones, Senior Fellow for Christ-Centered Visioning and First Lady of Belmont University in Nashville, Tennessee. For a free transcript of her sermon, Salt and Light, call us at 404-815-9110. That's 404-815-9110. Or write to us at Day 1, 2715 Peachtree Road, Atlanta, Georgia, 30305. Day One depends on the financial donations of our faithful listeners. Please consider supporting our unique ministry with a generous gift. We appreciate it. This is Peter Wallace. Next week on Day One, we're delighted to have with us the Reverend Dr. Randy Harris, Senior Pastor of Highland Presbyterian Church in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Randy's sermon is titled, Fully Human. Please join us next time on Day One.
Now, our day one preacher, Susan Pendleton-Jones, offers some final reflections on her sermon, Salt and Light. And Susan, you started and ended your sermon with that lovely image of your young son kissing your forehead in the form of a cross as you bid him good night. Kisses and a cross, you said, signifying blessing and sacrifice. The gospel writers regularly link these two themes together, you told us, and Jesus does as well in the Sermon on the Mount. Why do you think these two themes, blessing and sacrifice, are so tied together in the Bible? I think, in part, blessing is received as a gift, Mm. and there is a price paid for that gift, Mm -hmm. and and we only know the beauty and the depth of that gift of the love and the grace of God through the self-giving, life-sacrificing gift of, of Christ on the cross. And so the, the power of the cross, that sacrifice, which we know so beautifully through the Eucharist, um, is, and I describe in that fourfold pattern mm-hmm. of take, bless, break, and give— it, it draws it all together, and, and it's so much a part of our daily living. When we think of sharing meals together, which is what Eucharist really is, it's mm-hmm. that shared, shared time at the table and that patterning of taking food and then blessing it, offering that thanks to God for it, that gift of it, acknowledging the gift, and then the breaking of the bread, and then sharing it, mm. giving it to, to one another. That fourfold pattern is a pattern of Eucharistic hospitality mm-hmm. that helps us each day be a reminder that we live our lives. They are broken, and there is sacrifice, and there's pain and struggle, but that it all is under that blessing, mm. that gift, that grace of from God who promises promises us this deep love abiding in us and for us and through us. You reviewed the beginning of Jesus' sermon, the Beatitudes, in which he turns the status quo thinking of what it means to be blessed on its head. But you said his sermon doesn't end there. From his new vision of what it means to be blessed, he turns to what it means to be a blessing. One way to be a blessing, you told us, is to focus on the good, to call forth or draw out the good in others. Can you help us imagine what that might look like in our daily interactions? Yes, I think what people tend to do when reading the Sermon on the Mount, you know, it's chapters 5 through Mm 7. I think they often end where the Beatitudes end (laughs) and don't make the link between what Jesus is doing in the description of the passive voice of of the blessing, which was is received and is a gift, and then they stop before they get to the salt and light mm-hmm. and don't realize that those images are a call. They're a challenge. They are a reminder that we don't just live with the blessing. That it's wonderful that we have the gift of God to be blessed, mm-hmm. but but that's only part of the story. The rest of the story is how do we live out of that mm. and how do we become salt and light for the world? And I think your your question gets to what are ways that we do that and how do we how do we help others do that? And I think all of us know people who live this way, who are this amazing gift to others. Mm-hmm. 
And it's through their kindness, through their listening skills, through their generosity of spirit, through their love for other people, that they draw the good out of them. Um, they, it's, a, it's, a, it's a turning the tables on judgment, in mm-hmm. a sense. Mm-hmm. It's helping people to live to be into being their best selves rather than feeling put down or feeling judged or feeling criticized. Um, I, there is culpability and there is sin in our lives, and mm-hmm. we do need to change. But one way of approaching that is to love people out of their troubles and yeah. out of their sin and out of their uh, self-centeredness, rather than criticizing them or judging them out of it. And so to be salt and light is this invitation to illumine their lives or to be a flavor enhancer in their lives and just being just having the awareness that that's one of our callings as Christians uh, that Jesus Jesus not only says I am the light of the world he says you are the light of the world mm. and so we are called to be light to other people to illumine their lives um, in ways that help them, live into what God has created them to be because they're created in the image of God. And so as salt and light, we are helping them to bear that image of God even more brightly to others. Mm. Susan, what's one thing from your sermon today that you hope our listeners will carry with them in the days ahead? I hope what folks will take from this sermon is a reminder of the gift that God has given us that in being blessed, we are called to be a blessing. And that these images of salt and light, I hope that they will stay with people because salt doesn't exist for itself. It doesn't live on its own. And light is the same thing. They both exist to be in relationship with others. And Mm -hmm. so this uh, reminder that we are part of a community that we are called to live for others and not just focus on the needs of ourselves. I think that's part of what the Belmont students have picked up uh, in in being so, so service-minded and mm-hmm. other-oriented, is they are living into a calling to be salt and light for the world. So just a, a reminder to folks that uh, as Christians, we shouldn't be those who live in judgment, Mm. and uh, we should be those who draw out and call forth the good in those around us and help people to live uh, as as salt and light in a world of decay and a world of darkness. Mm. Susan Pendleton-Jones, thank you for being with us. Thank you, Peter. It's wonderful to be with you. Day One is the voice of America's mainline Protestant churches. Visit us online at dayone.org. Our program is recorded and edited by Donald Jones and produced by Peter Wallace. Thank you for joining us. I'm Sherry Miller wishing you all God's blessings on day one and forever. Mm